0: Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now. There you go. Click. Hi, welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist podcast and video for those that are watching on video. Of course, I'm Kieran Rands, the host, and we have a topic today that it, I'm so happy to circle back around and, and cover it again because it's too often people continue to get bogged down in this idea of what is a brand. And they think it's really simple because they think of like a Coca-Cola brand is it's their and it's a logo and it's something that people remember it's sort of like your your visual memory of of a company and stuff like that my guest today robert manisier is an expert in this space and he's going to help us understand why a brand is not just that but why a brand critical to the success of the company becomes part of the corporate culture. And what do you have to do as a CEO of a company and for the investors listening in, what the investors have to understand when they talk to the CEO and the executive team, do they get it? And if they don't get it, don't understand this, how it's going to impact their ability to actually grow and succeed and achieve the milestones that they've set forth when they're raising capital and when they're trying to become more than just a lifestyle business, okay? So let me tell you a little bit about Robert, and then we'll bring him on. He has decades of international commercialization leadership and now serves as entrepreneur in residence to the regional eco- ecosystem of the Capital District of New York to assist in the maturing of the startup and entrepreneurial companies in the in all of the affiliate partners. It's called Innovate 518, 518. And it's New York's innovation hotspot. There's also, he's also involved with Ignite U as an accelerator. He's a mentor at Faster Capital, which is a virtual incubator based out of Dubai. It's helping IT startups through their acceleration and incubation programs. And, it's, and not just startups. He's gonna share some of his experience of how you know, this is something that sometimes when, and I'm focused now on companies that are struggling to scale, and sometimes when they struggle to get beyond startup, it's because they have misunderstood the role of the brand, the role of their corporate culture when it comes to communicating and building trust with their customers and getting all of the employees from from market to, from R&D to sales on the same page and and working in motion, to achieve the goals of the corporation. So with that, Robert, hey, welcome to the show. Thank you for being on the Compassionate Capitalist Podcast.
1: Hi, Karen. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
0: So, you know, people come to this, you're not born with the idea, You and I know you don't learn it in college or in grad school, of the role of brand in a company and to be this trusted um, advisor at all these different levels, with all these different companies, and to be, you know, the person that the state of New York turned to to help their companies succeed for economic development, how did you? How do you become such an expert in this field?
1: I don't like the word expert, actually, Karen. Uh,
0: okay, tra- whatever word of, you like.
1: <laughs> a lot of trial and error. So I'm a work in progress still, as we all are, right? So it's just a lot of trial and error. I started my first company when I was 13. So we're 155 companies in of private companies created and obviously through all the programs i'm part of you know interacting with hundreds of companies a month so it really was looking at the mistakes i'd made some of the mishaps we had in business and trying to figure out a better way to be cohesive and on target and on mission and that's where the idea for us became a brand is part of the culture right when we talk about brand it's not the logo it's branded systems built specifically to a culture of the company that we're working with. And that's pretty much it in a nutshell. For us, the brand is the way you're working, who you're working with, who you're attracting, who you should be hiring and who you should be partnering with as a client.
0: Okay. So branded, I mean, that's a, it's a, a great picture that you painted there but you know trying to unwrap that and ca- get into what does that really mean, right? I mean, so what what is a branded system? to explain what you mean by that because you people know like operation systems and sales systems and things like that. So what is your branded system that you do for a corporate culture?
1: So every operational system a company has should be branded to the way they work and how they work. right And that starts with culture but it also means that you need to understand the dynamic between you and your client. That's why I know we're gonna talk about fundraising, that we really don't believe you should be raising money until you have a paying customer. Because until you have that paying customer, you don't have the voice of the marketplace in your company. It is great to sit there as a startup and we've all done it, right? We start a company, we're talking about how great our tech is, how great our product is, how great our service is, but we've never interacted with the market yet. And I think that's the biggest mistake companies make is you sit in your bubble, you build a perfect model, but the model's never been tested by the market. And no offense to anybody's technology, how smart they are. We don't matter. It's if the market accepts it and then how the market uses it, right? We see a lot of great websites that are not user-friendly because they never let customers play with it because we don't use technology the way it's built.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know... so it reminded me of a story when I first joined up with the network of business angel investors and the founder of that was kind of mentoring me to take over the organization. And i be, I really was really as girl Friday, right. I just, uh, you know, got the, got everything. I screened the companies and I remember this one company I, that had this, they were raising money. They had this software solution they were doing. And I asked the question, have you talked to anybody about whether they really need that software to work that way? Do you know if that's how they want it to work? He goes, Oh no, we just know. And I'm like, no way. And it seems like such common sense because I know investors totally. That's why they always say you need to have hundred thousand dollars in sales. And sometimes it's challenging if you got a big development effort to get that, but there's all kinds of ways to buy a, if you understand the customer need and they're a validated customer. So they, you can get them to help you get it developed, or help you get a, a a first pass of something done, you know, and and on on the way. So, is it really sort of by doing that you, and it becomes your corporate culture because you understand the problem you're solving in the marketplace and the 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 connection the customer will make from you solving that need that then they that becomes how you can you it's not what you think your brand is your customer has defined your brand
1: i i think it's somewhere in the middle because you can't be disingenuous right you you can't work or behave a certain way that your you and your management team and the people you hire work right people see the bs very quickly so there's a part of authenticity and i think social media and technology has opened that up right We buy from people first, right? We like and trust you, and then we're going to take your service on. With that dynamic, it's important to kind of know who you are and who you're not, right? We can see a lot of fake social media, a lot of fake advertising, right? And, And people are savvier to that because we see millions of imagery a day, right? We're just constantly bombarded with people telling us something. And if it looks like a disconnect, we're going to feel that it's not trustworthy or we don't like it. So part of it starts with knowing what you are and what you aren't in in-house, but also how the customer is interacting with you. And somewhere in the middle should be the perfect alignment for brand recognition, brand awareness, and a strong culture. Because the culture is, we don't, we can't work with everyone, right? And I think that's a huge mistake most startups go into or entrepreneurs think everybody can buy my service. Well, that's not true. There is right. not anything on this planet that can everyone can use or buy. Right,
0: right. right. Well, I think
1: that's the first misconception. And once we know who really gets what we do and who uses it a certain way, then we can map out a system that benefits the company because you're always true to your mission. You're as true to yourself. It doesn't feel like work, right? And then we're mapping to the customer who gets the interaction and gives us feedback? So we're always staying in front of the marketplace or at at the marketplace voice, not trying to lead it. I think that's yeah. the other mistake. You know, and we talked about it earlier. You know, we try to lead markets at most entrepreneurs and startups. Like I'm going to tell you how to use this. That's not our job. It's to build it, and then let them tell us how they use it, and learn from that iteration.
0: So is that almost kind of one of the sort of the premises they don't use the word brand but the the authentic customer iteration part of growth hacking where you're you're modifying it just a little bit all along the way because you're constantly getting feedback from your customer you're finding who's going to buy it at this stage and then from that you get iterations of an improved product
1: Yeah I wouldn't use that as brand right I would use that as growth hacking and customer discovery Right Part of the brand might morph over time, but the culture for how the company works should be reflected in how they work with the customer, right? It's not like we're one team here and then we go out and we're completely different because people see that as a disconnect.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, if um, is the mission and the vision, do you do you have to get that clear clear? And then see if the customer responds to it before you sort of back into, Now this is how we identify as our brand.
1: Well, I think the mission, I mean, a lot of people spend a lot of time on mission vision. We spend most of our time getting to market and then clearing some of that, cleaning some of that up. But you should know why you're running a business. There are some businesses we have met that it's just money focused, right? All we care about is making money. That's a That's not a large majority of the companies we see or work with. There's another mission. Obviously, we all have to make money or we're not in business, but there's other mission, right? It's lifestyle It's you want to make a difference. You know, you believe that what you're creating is the best thing in the marketplace. So there's a lot of reasons for mission and, and you start with a mission and that morphs possibly over time too, as you get new voices in the biggest thing we start with is a transparent open communication platform for every company. Cause if, if you have pockets of information, you're never going to be unified. So building a culture that's open.
0: Yeah.
1: Dialogue is allowed and not, you know, smashed down or, or limited is the first step in any building a great brand.
0: Well, I, and I, and I, I, like to try to use some examples. I remember, you know, IBM. So I'll use I Let's use IBM as an example. Um, So, when I was with IBM and I first, when I was in in grad school, you know, IBM was put up as this um, up on a pedestal of a company that was, um, was, you could, it was the, the old adage that you never got fired if you bought IBM, right? Because they were trustworthy, they were high quality, all that kind of stuff, right? That was their image of their brand. When I got into the company, Come to find out, not as much, right? And so, one particular case in point, it was right when and I'll age myself a little bit here. So I, when I came in there, um, we were first starting to sell PCs against typewriters. Okay, so that's that's when I first started working for IBM, and so you had to establish the benefit of, of the type a PC over a typewriter and who you sold to was secretaries, right, because they were the ones that would influence a decision. Fast forward, desktop publishing, Apple's in the market with desktop publishing. And so IBM has to, we're losing the piece part of this because of desktop publishing. So we come out with a printer that's gonna do this work for us, right? And um, I was part of a team that was missioned to sell these through the dealer channel. Within six months, we came out with a second product that was better because it had all the features that people really wanted. Because the first one was what they thought people wanted based on what was on a chart of Apple or something. I don't know. And, um, and there was no upgrade path. And we had just gone out and done a major push that people could not didn't have to buy Apple. They could buy IBM and stay with, you never get fired if you buy IBM, and buy this $600, $900, whatever it was expensive for that time, printer. And then six months later, we came out with the better printer with no upgrade path, no trade-in, no nothing. I as the voice, right? I'm dealing with the customers. I'm dealing with the heat from that. I'm trying to tell the higher ups, you've got to have an upgrade path on this. Oh no, we're not gonna have an upgrade path. We're just going to, you know, they'll just have to buy the next one. They'll just do that. It was like, that was the attitude. And, you know, not too much longer further after that was when, you know, all these different piece, like Compact and Dell and, you know, the monitor people and uh, uh, HP printers, they all started to eat the lunch of IBM because people started buying different pieces that were better. And then eventually there was no loyalty to IBM, right? So I think to me that's an exact example of them not listening. Somebody may, somebody driving a, a pencil, paper pencil, like on what it would have cost for this or that or the other, you know development of a product in in seclusion from the marketplace, the delivery of the product, the path of the product, all these other kind of things. And they weren't having the open communication like you were talking about. They weren't listening to the customers. All of those pieces was, you know, there was a book written on the unmaking, the baby blues, the unmaking of IBM. And that was, you know, part of it. It's a a good example, I think. What do you think? It's
1: a good example. It also shows what happens when you become, a market leader and think that everything you do is right so internal to our companies we never think we're right right we're, we're testing hypotheses we believe a market will go a certain way but until we have real metrics back we don't believe that but we never lose the connection to the customer and I know IBM's culture changed since yeah but at that point market leader You can't go wrong by buying IBM. That creates a vanity and an ego where everything you think you're doing is always right. And you forget that you don't matter as much. It's the market that matters. And you were there and you're screaming, but you're screaming against the wall because they're not listening. Yeah. That's a great example of a brand that kind of solidified itself and forgot that a culture and a brand is a living piece of the company. You don't just set it and forget it. You have to make sure you're improving it. And you're making sure you're changing over time with the changing dynamics of a marketplace.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Great example, though, Karen.
0: Yeah. So, do you see that? So, when when companies are they they're they're nipping at the heels of a competitor, right? And they're coming in. Do they make a mistake of a of of identifying a brand as we are the alternate to that versus standing on their own? Is that a challenge that some companies have? Where they identify so much as being the underdog that they never really, they, they struggle with then stepping out of the shadows?
1: That is one of the, the kind of pitfalls we find. We try to readjust thinking to always stay focused on the benefit you drive to your customer, right? So if you're always focused on the benefits, listen, there are always going to be competitors and competitors in the same marketplace could be potential partnerships down the line collaborations, right? So we need competitors, it keeps us hungry. It also has opportunities for other business revenue lines. And we try to really focus on, once again, what we do for our customer and and what our clients do for their customers. And if we know the benefits and we know where we sit, it's not always us against them, I really don't like negative marketing. I I don't think it really helps in the end. And it just turns, we're we're living through it right now in a very negative political, where people are just yelling at each other and nothing productive is coming out of it. So stay focused on your customer base. And if you really know your customers, they're not going to leave you. And that's the other part of brand is if it's important to you and it's important to your customer, you're going to figure out branded ways of keeping that relationship and letting it grow over time. It's not about the transaction and most businesses isn't about transaction. It's about relationships and networks and building upon past success and past failures. Mm -hmm. You know, we've had a number of companies blow up on us, right? Nothing's perfect. And we've kept most of the investors in those companies because of the brutal honesty. And they knew what was happening as we were living it. So it wasn't like we were hiding it, which happens a lot, right? We we're going to try to fix it. Nobody knows. We came right out and said, "Here, we're going sideways here. This isn't working." And and most of them have stayed with us over the years. So that's a testament to our relationship, right? It doesn't yeah. always have to be good.
0: So are some of the metrics? Because one of the things that it, you know people try to wrap their heads around is this idea of goodwill as an asset, right? And so is, is goodwill something that you end up developing and measuring because you have this, this trusted brand, that you have this relationship and customer ro- ro- uh, loyalty? Does that end up becoming, manifesting itself through the goodwill where they might give you a pass sometimes because you have developed goodwill? Is that, how does that relate?
1: Um, a few things. One is, I don't know if they give us a pass, but we're, we're brutally blunt with setting expectations. So if somebody's going to go into a startup with us, they have to understand the risks. It's not all about the reward, right? It's, you have to understand what you're getting into. So if you set those expectations, it, it limits some of the problems down the road. You're not selling them something that's not real. The goodwill, I think, just like business, is an active piece of any company it's it's great to have notoriety and awareness but just like we care about results and results that we're driving now we also have to keep driving goodwill and it's not just goodwill with our clients and our investors it's with the communities we operate in and i think that's where a a good feeling comes from right you're doing things that matter to a community it's not always about your business i think it always reflects back to your business but i think when i think of goodwill, it's what positive changes or how do we help and support a community that we're actually working with and the community of our workers and our clients' families, right? Because that's a, that's a, that's a net of people that you're involved with. Yeah. Hope that made sense.
0: Yeah. Okay. So is there uh, an indicator that a company say that they're beyond startup, they're rocking and rolling is there something, there's any kind of key indicator or any kind of thing that they should, that would make them, they're out there going, they're not quite sure why things aren't going what they expect. They're trying to figure out what's wrong. Is there, a, is there something that you can say, well, if they are experiencing this, that's why they have a brand problem or a culture problem? Is there, is it, is there or is it just really, you got to be in it to know it?
1: No, every company goes to those plateau stages and some companies just sit at the flat line, right? You hit a plateau and you're there. I I think that is a direct correlation to that your systems weren't built to scale, Mm -hmm. right? And that's why we're looking at branded systems, pieces that could be templated, formula, without losing the culture of the company, but allows you to expand fairly easily. Some of this in communications and messaging is where you create these templates. Right on the most granular level, you create templates so nobody has to recreate emails all the time or certain responses and creation of FAQs. Right, those are easy things you can do that allow you to get more work out faster. But the other part of that is branded ways of building a relationship because everybody looks for the new business development. Right, we're always one of the metrics every company measures is new business we put a lot of emphasis on growing our existing client relationships so that they're buying from us more. They're buying with more volume or capacity or that we're just creating new revenue lines with them. So that's, that's a metric we always look at. And a lot of times when we go into plateaued companies, we see that they've completely almost turned their back on their existing customer base.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Cause they just think it's going to be there. And there's too many options. I think if you think you have somebody for life, you forgot that there's just too many options out there. And there's too many smart people looking to grab your clients.
0: So. Yeah. Well, there's, um, it, it just triggered a thought of my, my daughter started with this company that's growing. And this is probably a problem we can roll into the startup conversation because they're fairly young, they're a couple of years old. Um, they're, it's a services business, but they, um, they are growing so fast that they just it ain't broke don't fix it kind of a thing in such a way that when she first went in there at an entry-level job they had nothing documented like so she started out as a receptionist and now she's in marketing but when she went in there they had nothing like how do you answer the phones what's the script like and some lady came down and wrote a bunch of stuff on a piece of paper and said use this and she was like what you know, and, and she, even as, you know, she knew that wasn't like, and I said, well, document that. And that'll, you know, that'll help them. And, you know, then she got, because it grows so fast, she got promoted like short order. They brought somebody else in and they still don't have a system for that, right? And they don't have any, you know what I mean? And they're, they will plateau, right? So probably one of the first things is that you as a CEO, if you're listening to this, if you've got so much business coming in That all you can do is respond to it. It is time to step back, hire somebody to help you put the systems in, so that you can scale. Because you'll, I see that all the time. People implode because they 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 end up leaving so much on the table because they can't handle it because they don't have the systems to handle it. And that's really, it's not just the systems. It's it's having it be consistent with your with all of this messaging around. It's not just get a CRM system. It's a CRM system that understands how to handle the intake of a, of a customer, customer retention and customer acquisition, and how is that all related to product delivery and everything else, but within what you define yourself as a brand. Am I, am I repeating back to you what you, what, what you try to convey to companies?
1: Yeah, and and that's a great example of, so when we go into startups, we make them journal their their progress, like nothing fancy, journal your day-to-day activities, because in everybody's activity in the startup, there are places where we can create a template, and if the template's created, then you can scale faster without losing connectivity. And the biggest thing that happens with companies, right, and it's really hard to say you're gonna work on your company instead of in, when everything's turning, right? Our heads are down and we forget a lot of other things that are happening. Absolutely, but everybody's journaling and somebody can look at that with a, a point of view that's outside the company, you can start connecting the dots of what can be a system and what can't. There are certain things in a company that can never be a system. Just flat out, you, you just can't build a system everywhere. Some things have to be unique and the client's going to dictate some of that. But a lot of the pieces, as you're taking in more and more clients, you can learn what works best. And what doesn't work so well. And we always tell clients that are in that mode, we got to start segmenting your client base. Cause some of these clients are probably not worth it. And, and that's, you know, listen, when I first started my companies, I would have hate, I would have hated to hear that. Because I want to take everybody. I want whoever wants to work with me, I'm going to work with. And what you find is it's inefficient, you're not maximizing profit, and you're not doing right by your team or the client. Yeah. And that's hurt you in the long run. So yeah.
0: So is that something that the CEO has to be able to cast this vision to the team that says, Hey, we're doing great. And it seems like we're like, you're so busy, you're just swamped. But at the end of the day at, at noon or some point in time, you know, identify what works for you first thing in the morning, everybody has to do this. And here's, it's not because I'm, because a lot of times something like that, like journaling, people are like, ah, whatever you know what I mean but to get them to emotionally buy into it to say put three sentences down on a piece of paper or in this this wiki this internal wiki that we've created or something that says you know just as simple as that so it just everybody's one and then at the end of the month our our advisor Robert Is going to, or you know, whatever is going to look at this and start parsing out where we can automate some of the things that we do on on a daily basis, and you'll be happier in your work if you take the time to do this each day. Is it something where they have to motivate them to to actually do it? Because it seems like it wouldn't work if only part of the people do it.
1: It depends on how big the company is. So there's a few things there. We try to avoid titles early on. So I'm starting like true startups, right? Try to avoid titles, just as advice. Everyone's in business development, right? If you're starting a company and you have four people with you, (laughs) I don't care what your job is, it's business development. Okay. We always put incentive packages or we incentivize actions to unify them. So we always have incentives and I even still incentivize my staff and one of my staffs have been with me for 30 years. I'm still buying them pizza and beer and wings to get them to share because we're not in constant contact anymore. Right? So we jump together for a project and then we jump out and we're remote for a long time. So I'm still incentivizing them the way I incentivized them 25, 27 years ago. Wow. Right. To, to get them, you know, and at this point I probably don't have to, but it feels good. It's part of the family structure, yeah. right? So I think if you can incentivize them to take some minutes during their work day to focus on that, that there's, you know, they're already getting paid or compensated somehow. You can give them something extra and it also allows for that open communication because some people will fake the journals and we've done this for so long that we can look at the journals that were fake. They wrote them at the last minute when <laughs> It like, doesn't even match what you do for a living. So it's interesting. So you want, <laughs> right? And you don't want to penalize anybody for like having a bad system. We just want to see what they do so we can try to fix it or improve it.
0: So. Yeah. It's harder to do that now that things get timestamped. I remember when I laugh because I would change color of pins and I would write. So it would be like I wrote them at different times. I would take up a different thing. I'd be like, "Oh yeah, I got to turn this in." Okay, (laughs) what was I? What did I do on that date? Oh yeah, I met with this guy and like, (laughs) nice. Nice.
1: Right?
0: (laughs) All right. So you mentioned earlier about um, not don't raise money until you have customers. So why is that important for the entrepreneur? Why is that important for the investor? That that is. You know, investors do it because it just proves that they have the ability to actually close a deal as sort of like a basic check mark. But it's deeper than that in why you believe that that's important, right?
1: Because one is you don't know what you really do for a living until you have a paying customer. You don't know if your systems work. You don't know how your customer service is. You, you really don't know until somebody pays you because that gives them power in the relationship. If you're giving it out for free, people don't really care. It goes back to attitude and behavior, right? We focus on behavior. So when somebody pays you, their behavior changes because they've paid you for what you do. But it also validates you in the marketplace. And the biggest disconnect I see if you're trying to raise money without that is it puts you at a negative to the investor. It changes the dynamic of the negotiation for raising capital because you haven't proven anything yet. So they're taking a risk and they want way more reward then you should be giving up. And it's not fair to the investor, you know, if you're looking at this as a true partnership, and we always classify money versus smart money. Smart money is where you're taking money, where people are aligned with your mission, they, they understand what you do, and they have a longer time frame, which goes back to angel investing, right? Have a longer time frame than somebody who just drops money and wants to make money and wants some kind of hard and fast date. Like within the year, I need my money back. You know, sometimes you have to take bad money. But we classify it where there's money and we can raise money or smart money, which is true alignment. And if you have market validation, that helps with that, that kind of negotiation and also setting expectations. Like you're going to give me money, but I know that we're not going to get to break even for 27 months based on this number. And we're all in a great, we're all looking at the same metrics. Yeah, I think it makes for a better conversation, a better relationship and a, a fairer deal.
0: Yeah. Now, just so clarify for the listeners, because, you know, there's a lot of accelerators and incubators out there where, you know, like just say, Y Combinator for example, right? A lot of people model after that. And that's where they throw a little bit of money to a lot of companies, just throw it up on the wall to see if they can get to the point of having their first customer. And they, they factor that into their risk quotient because they know they're going to lose the majority of that. One of the guys I interviewed for a show not too long ago, they have this metrics of a little bit of money, the first one that do a lot of companies. and the ones that do what they say and get to a customer, then they get the next route. So they by the time they put in 100 grand, let's say in a company, you know they started out with you know 10 grand in you know 50 companies, let's say. Right. And they by the time they get up there, that company has traction, it knows the stuff that you know, and they're the ones that they pick as winners. And to them, they factor their money as part of their part of their it's their it's part of their their loss quotient that they look at that. And um, a whole lot of other most people that and my purpose, the reason why I wrote the book is to bring more people into the marketplace that don't have to have that risk factor right and so a big part of where i work with those companies are the ones that are at that plateau that you described that says you know and probably a third of most investor portfolios and angel groups are like that because they didn't do the piece that you just described they might people are more into it now but they got a third of their companies that took some money they raised a million dollars let's say they got to market they might be generating a million in revenue or 2 million in revenue but they can't get to the 20 million or what they need to get to because they can't scale. They don't have the systems. They don't understand their customer. They're too busy working in their business to work on their business, right? And, and so for those investors out there that say, well, I, I, I like what Robert says. I want companies that know who their customer is and all that kind of stuff and the the messages that they're out there. They just don't know where to go get that money when they've sort of plateaued. And the good news is, if they understand this piece of it and the work is, talk a little bit about how you believe social media now helps to convey the brand of a customer in a way that can connect, actually connect with the customer because part of that advertising and branding, once you fix it internal, then you can be really clear and not have a confusing message when it goes outside of your company. Because that's, I think, is how you can reach beyond to that next level of investor to buy into, oh, I like what this company's doing and they're trying to bring another another set of products out or something like that.
1: Right. I'm just going to go back and talk about the seeding of multiple companies. Okay. That's a strategy for deploying money from the investor or the group of investor side our customer discovery model is more focused on the small business owner and the entrepreneur, right? To make sure that you're getting a fair deal with a high probability of some kind of sustainable success. So we always tell them because it's not that difficult to get small lines of credit or small loans. We like to start with debt, even in our own companies, when we're starting new ones, we start with debt. It does a few things. Sometimes and I'll generalize a lot of entrepreneurs see getting money from an investor as the lottery ticket. So yes. they money. Okay. And they don't your treat daddy. It the same. They don't treat it the same as debt that they know every month they got to make a payment on. It changes the way you're fiscally responsible. So we like that structure okay. even for us to this day. And and it also makes you only take what you need or what you think you need. There's nothing wrong with starting to build a prototype or a beta and realize that you didn't ask for enough money. And maybe you have to go to an investor then, but you start because there's a learning and there's a maturity in that process. That's investors pick up on. They understand if, if they're savvy enough and they've been around long enough, who's coachable, who gets the fact that they know they don't know everything. Cause that goes a long way too. investors yeah. aren't just looking at the deal because we're not investing in the company. A lot of time we're investing in the group, in the right. people. And they have to be a certain prototype for us to feel comfortable with the risk, because it's all risk. But we like to start with debt, just to go back to that, because we want to keep the entrepreneur as focused on what they're trying to build as possible. Because the moment you take an investor dollar, you have a new voice in the company, which is going to change the culture, going to change the dynamics. It changes the whole process. And most people don't realize how much it does change,
0: It does, regardless
1: of it's smart money or just money. So,
0: Yep. Yep. You have stakeholders that, you know, have a say, and that's where I always get a kick out of it, um, entrepreneurs that say, Oh, I'm going to, I'm raising $3 million. I want three investors. And it's like, good luck with that. You know how hard it is to get through to somebody that's going to stroke a million dollar check because if they got that kind of money. You, the bar is so high. It's just like I, I have to do this whole education process on, on what the average investor does and you know gatekeepers and all that kind of stuff because if you got a million dollars that you're going to stroke a check for that means that you're doing you're may, you're investing 5 or 10 million dollars in a year if you're smart about it and you put it into a VC fund or an angel fund you know or I mean, a company that you're following on to something else you're not doing it for a startup
1: but you're also tranching it anyway yeah. You're not giving all the money. You're going to set up a milestone. And that's one of the things we make all of our startups do is create milestones, timelines and milestones. Got and it. then how much money you need for each mile. Cause no one's right. going to just give you a check. If it's a million dollars, no one's just giving you a million dollar check at the startup stage. They're going to say, I'll give you 200,000 and then hit this mark and I'll give you another mm-hmm. 200 or however it works out. Yeah. But no one's giving it to all at once.
0: Yeah. Well, so I would, I, yeah, you have to work through the financials to say, because and it's all to the question that we just talked about. When you start to have customers, your valuation instantly goes up. Yep. People say, well, I'm pre-revenue. What are you? It's like, well, you know, they have this, this number that they use, you know, because nobody really knows how to set valuation like that. And that's how my like, safe notes started and all that other kind of stuff, right? And it's like, once you start to get traction – And then you have to really understand how you're going to generate your revenue. What's your sales cycle? I'll say, what's your cost of sales? Or what's your sales cycle? Do you really know how long? Well, software, it always takes longer than you think it's going to take. So how are you going to do your cash flow from them? What is the real money you need until you get to the point that you can pay your own bills and figure that stuff out? Break even point.
1: Because a lot of companies and startups and entrepreneurs don't know it. At what point does all your bills get covered by revenue? That's, That's the first thing we always ask is where's your break-even point? I, listen, I can all see the hockey stick, which I can't
0: see. <laughs> yeah.
1: Most ridiculous projection ever. We've been doing this a long time. I don't think I've ever hit a hockey stick. So, but the break-even point is the key because then we know when the real business starts and how we can deploy organic profit in back into the company.
0: Yeah, right, right. And start fueling your growth. I, always, I, When I used to do this uh, educational pitch sometimes, and it's called building a clock, or when is your business a clock? And it's like, you know, being able to step away from it, it operates like a clock. You don't have to be there all the time, right? And I, when I go through the types of money, I always say customers are the best source of growth capital. Right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Completely yeah. agree.
0: So as we are wrapping up here, what have we? What have I not asked you that you wanna make sure people hear and understand from you, Robert?
1: Wow, that's a good question. Uh, don't be afraid to admit failure, I think. A lot of people sugarcoat everything. I, I think the greatest lessons we'll ever learn in business are the times that we made mistakes. And the mistakes should be just like money's tranched in, You should never take the full risk. Like we always baby step into everything because we don't know enough, right? New market, Mm -hmm. new clientele, you don't know enough. But don't be afraid of admitting mistakes. And, And that's a great time when you make a mistake as a leader, if I'm talking to the leaders of companies, to share that with your team opens up the door to real brainstorming, like structured brainstorming, not just everybody throwing you crap, right? Opinions don't matter to me. Opinions backed up with some kind of plausibility and validation matter but if you can open up that dialogue the people that are doing the work for you probably have great ideas to make your company better yeah you don't see it all it's impossible for you to see it all just like your ibm example right
0: if they had listened
1: to you because you're in the trenches you're in the field next to your clients hearing this if they had listened they would probably still have been at the top of the pecking order
0: yeah yeah that and that was just one piece of of A whole lot of things that they were, you know, disconnected on with customers. Um, And the other thing is
1: make sure you know where your product fits into the market on a behavior, your client's behavior level, not their attitude. If somebody tells me they like what I do, I almost discount that because I want to know how they use what I do.
0: Right, right. Oh, I know uh, the, the being forthright and being, you know, straight up. One of the worst mistakes that I've seen Um, entrepreneurs do is when they shut down and don't communicate with their investors. And we would have, you know, and they don't know. And so investors don't just assume no news is good news. They assume no news means bad news. And, and then they start to get fearful and all kinds of other stuff can start to happen and they're questioning your authenticity questioning what you're doing with your money are you mishandling the money are you you know and then they can pull an audit on you and you know all kinds of bad stuff can happen when that you know those kind of things happen they're not an annoying mosquito in your ear if you communicate with them on a regular basis and you have challenges they're going if you're if you say, this is what we encountered, we weren't expecting this, this is our plan, or what do you think, this is what we think, so what do you think, they'll come to you, they'll help you through that, and they will even continue to fund you. That's why they have white powder that investor groups have, is because they want to be able to put more money into the entrepreneurs that they trust are going to be open and coachable and continue to work along the way investors save back smart ones, save back money to be able to help those invest those entrepreneurs that do exactly what you were describing, Robert.
1: And in those circumstances, relying on their networks, cause they're going to be, they're going to have a larger resource pool than you do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They probably have somebody that they know and trust that can come in and help you. Like that's very important. And that's why the communication is always key.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you can, it's easy just for those investors, entrepreneurs out there going, oh, I've got, you know, 50 investors. I got 100 investors. How do I communicate with that many people? I don't want that many people opinions, right? Well, not everybody's going to give you an opinion. You're going to, you know, hopefully the ones that were key influencers in their industry that became an investor have some form of a role in the board of advisors that you listen to on a regular basis, those kind of things. But you know, if you are communicating out a um, a memo of your results or things that have happened on a monthly basis, and then you have a challenge, and you can do a conference call, or you can ask specific questions and ask people, there's a way to streamline the feedback that you can get from the investors. So you can do it, and it's not just a you know a noisy free for all. And the, and some people will come into that and just listen to hear and trust that the other investors that are being vocal are saying what they would say too. And, you know, you're flying together.
1: Yeah. And going back to something you asked that we never finished up on the social use of social media technology. That's a great way of keeping everyone on the same page because they're not going to always follow your social media, but if you're in a constant If you're in some kind of structured plan of getting certain messaging out, and a lot of social media isn't trying to sell your product or service, it's giving tips, proving that you're an expert in the field, right? Because that's what people buy. They want to know that you're educating them, right? People will come to you if you're giving them benefit and you're giving them some good value beside what you do for a living. You can consolidate that onto a very easy hyperlink email and just send it to all your investors if you're talking to investors. Here's what we did this month. And you're not doing any extra work than cutting and pasting your social media posts. And they can follow because they're not probably always following all of them. They probably have multiple investments. You know, we get too many messages in every day anyway to really pay attention to them all. But to focus on that and that's a good use of social media and that's made it easier over time. Like you can follow what we're posting. You know, and some of that should be case studies and results of what you're doing. And some of it should just be, here's what we've learned. You know, as a startup, you learn a lot every day. All of that becomes really good content for social media.
0: Yeah, very good. Okay, Uh, well, Robert, thank you. So, oh, and for folks to connect up with Robert Manassier at InFocus Brands, just go to LinkedIn. And that's the best way to find out about the projects he's working on. You use that to talk about your case studies. And talk about things that you're working on, and things that you've learned, things you've helped companies to do. So it's a great place to to get more information about Robert's perspective on this, his expertise in this, and also connect with him. So go to LinkedIn and and do that, please. And it's just your name, right? I didn't I didn't go look it on, up.
1: Or, or there's company pages. There's a number of company pages we're aligned with, but it all starts with the profile, so that's the easiest. Yeah.
0: Okay. Very good. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, I think it was just great. And for those that are, are, uh, you know, on the podcast, a little message to come after this, but onwards and upwards, everybody. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Compassionate Capitalist podcast radio, where we encourage individual investment in entrepreneurs to create generational wealth and best practices for small businesses to succeed. Help us spread the word about Compassionate Capitalism by sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues. The Compassionate Capitalist podcast is available on most podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. In production for over 10 years, there are over 180 episodes available for your listening and educational pleasure. With over 130,000 downloads, this podcast is rapidly becoming the top podcast for investors and entrepreneurs to get the information they need to create generational wealth through entrepreneurism. This podcast is brought to you by the Business Power Tools, which offers an online collaborative environment for leadership teams to prepare business plans, marketing strategies, financial modeling needed to attract capital and scale a business. Also, Lindio as a Entrepreneurs Resource Portal, providing access to dozens of lenders offering short-term and long-term debt to help business owners manage their financial cash flow and growth capital needs. BizX, creating affordable advertising resources and other tools for entrepreneurs to succeed and create awareness and trust with their customer base. And Launch Funding Network, part of Rand Capital Holdings. It's a network of hundreds of angel investors, investor clubs and networks, venture capital firms, private equity funds, family offices, investment bankers, and lenders. Please visit KarenRance.co to learn more about the Launch Funding Network and our sponsors, and to sign up to get our Compassionate Capitalist Coffee Break and learn more about how we can help you succeed.